before we get into another episode of Tipping Pitches, thank you for tuning in. I uh, just wanted to let you all know that we recorded this track before Wilson Ramos signed with the Mets. Uh, so if you are wondering why we're not talking about that and why I'm not through the moon, that's the reason. We will be getting into that in depth in the coming weeks whenever we record our next episode. But for now, um, just enjoy what we were able to talk about today because the Mets felt the need to just make news hours after we stopped recording. Thanks as always for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrel pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing, and man. That's remarkable. Alex, Adam Ottavino sprung some controversy this past week when he gave a quote. Was it a quote or did he tweet it? How did this was, come into the ether? It was a quote. This is on, uh, this is on the StatCast podcast, MLB.com's StatCast podcast. Wow, worse and, than our podcast. I can't believe yeah. he wouldn't come on our podcast to say this because we would have a way better reaction. Yeah, we really would. Really lame. Adam Modavino, come on and defend your takes. Um, host by hosted by Mike uh, Petriello and uh, Ottavino and Petriello were talking about like how how pitching has evolved and how the game has just kind of generally changed. And Ottavino started talking about an argument he had with like a coach in AAA and. The coach was like, yo, Babe Ruth would hit like 370 with 60 home runs against you. And uh, and Adovina's like, yo, I would strike Babe Ruth out every time. And then he goes on, he's like, I'm not trying to just dis- dis- disrespect him, you know? Rest in peace, you know? Shout out to Babe Ruth. But it was a different game. I mean, the guy ate hot dogs and drank beer and did whatever he did. It was a different game. And we're here for this. Adam Adovino would mow down Babe Ruth 10 times out of 10. We're not even going to argue about the validity of this statement because we are both in agreement that Adam Adovino would probably strike Babe Ruth out 80% of the time. My (laughs) question for you is, how far back in history would you have to go before the pitchers just wouldn't strike out Babe Ruth every time? Like, I'd say pretty much all of the 2000s, most of the pitchers would strike Babe Ruth out every time, right? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Randy Johnson, Babe Ruth would look like freaking... You and me. uh, uh, Yeah, honestly. Batting from the wrong side of the plate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, 2000s, 90s also. At least like the 60s, right? Like, I still think Bob Gibson would get up there and probably make Babe Ruth look foolish. Yeah, I think there were probably a select few pitchers who would make him look foolish in each decade dating back to the 60s for sure. But I don't think like as a league. Yeah, the, you couldn't you couldn't pick any pitchers random pitcher. Would, yeah, exactly. But you could yeah. definitely do that now. Yeah. I don't know. Like Brandon Woodruff would strike out Babe Ruth like 7 times out of 10. Yeah. You don't need to you don't need anything more than to just watch videos of how he swung. Show me another player who can swing like that and get hits now. <laughs> just like these are the facts my guy look at hunter pence yeah he's the well, only I, one who can do it and he's like an athletic freak he's not drinking he, you know he's he's like paleo and like super stringy and athletic and and lanky and stuff he's not like babe ruth who looks like a bowling ball with legs flipping your question like 
like how far beyond Babe Ruth do you think that like Adam Montavino could get? So if you go like decade by decade after Babe Ruth, do you how like like at what point do you think that you pull any random hitter and he doesn't strike him out 10 times out of 10? Because if you strike out Babe Ruth, you've got everyone else in the league, right? So uh, yeah, at, what at, that point, time. At, yeah. at what at what point does Adovino not be able to strike out like the best hitter in the league 10 times out of 10? Because like you're good through the 20s, you're good through the 30s, you're still good. You're still good through the 40s, probably. If the, we're being the 40s honest, 40s don't count because of World War II. Yeah, it was like true. John Smith was playing for yeah. the Yankees at shortstop. Um, like, like, could Adovino strike out Ted Williams ten times out of ten? I guess probably not. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I think the 60s is when he would start running into issues. Yeah, and definitely not in the 70s and 80s. Even like Stan Musial, right? Who played in the 40s. I have trouble thinking that like he wouldn't be able to at least like roll over on one or even poke one into right field or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's not get crazy here. I don't think he would literally strike Babe Ruth out every time. <laughs> I kind of do, honestly. <laughs> well, yeah. All he would have to do is just throw sliders because that wasn't a pitch yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ruth would be like, uh. <laughs> Like Ruth would walk up all cocky and like shove a few hot dogs down his throat before strolling up to the plate and like, you know, wave his cap to the fans like he's the fucking shit. And then uh, and then Ottavino would just make him look like a child. Yeah, I think the two things are velocity and velocity combined with pitch movement. Those were just yeah. two things that just didn't exist when Babe Ruth was playing. And so I, I tend to think if you gave him like a year to adjust, he would probably be OK. Yeah. But yeah. In this this strict hypothetical that Adam Ottavino is talking about, which I am so here for, I love these hypothetical situations when it comes to baseball because nobody has the answers at all. And usually we there's just a right answer when it comes to baseball analysis, and I like it when there's no answer at all, and we can just speculate for once in our lives. <laughs> um, I think Ottavino would probably just mow that dude down. Yeah, I think he would. He would. I don't know how fast does Ottavino throw. It's not like pushing a hundred, is it? 94 95 miles an hour according to fan Yeah, okay. So all of this all of this is to say that if you put Noah Syndergaard back in the 60s or 70s, I think he could probably strike out the league's best hitter consistently back then. Yeah, you're right. A two-seamer with two feet of movement in the opposite direction. Don't tell me Ted Williams is hitting that. I don't yeah. care what you say. <laughs> Ted Williams, he hit 400, but you're, he's not hitting that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait for like somebody who's like 40 to like, or like 40, 50, 60, whatever, to like stumble across our podcast one day and just like, we're just going to get a lot of hate mail. We, and you know, deservedly so. If you actually stumble across this years down the road, more respect to you. God, I, I'm looking at Babe Ruth's mechanics right now. Oh my God, they're so bad. Jesus. <laughs> how was this guy ever any good? How was this guy the best hitter in the league? Back foot, not planted at all. His hands are not set. They're like bobbing up and down. Uh, he flies way open. I mean, it looks like a more like a golf swing. <laughs> Here's the last hypothetical. What would Mike Trout hit in 1927? Oh, God. <laughs> um, in 1927, Mike Trout, north of 700? I don't know. 700, you think? I mean, Mike Trout's really good. 
Yeah, you. But seven hundred is a little high. You you just hit hard liners straight to people at some point, you know. I mean, maybe, but how hard were they throwing back then? Like eighty, eighties. So like BP. Yeah, I guess you're right. Wow, what a thought! What a thought! I know we really need that. Someone, uh, someone invents a time machine, and that's the first thing we're doing. Hey, Mike, buddy, I need you real quick. All right, we're gonna stumble out of the world of reckless. Reckless speculation in a second, but before we do, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Paisley. And this is Tipping Pitches. The podcast where you don't have to be right, you just have to be funny. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes not even funny, man. We're We're just out here saying words and just hoping things stick. Alex, we talked about a story... Last year at some point, back when we were still in the, the basement of 89.1 WNYU, shout out our alum, we talked about the A's catcher Bruce Maxwell and how he was the first and I think only player to bring the, the national anthem kneeling protest into baseball. And we talked about how as someone who is kind of like a platoon catcher and uh, comes from a military family and is a person of color in a historically white sport, which in America is just to say a sport, but who could if he he could have easily been cut or blacklisted for the future? We talked about how brave of a choice that was to make that protest in light of all that was going on at the time in the NFL and with the president and all of the stuff that was swirling around that. It turns out it was a brave choice because all of the stuff that we speculated might happen because of the natural forces of baseball and the systemic issues that inform it, uh, it kind of all did happen. There was a report last this past week that um, an anonymous executive gave a quote that Bruce Maxwell has not gotten a next contract yet. And that I think he said pretty explicitly that he feels that it's because of the national anthem protest. Do you want to give some of the details yeah, so this is from a story in the Chronicle by Susan Slusser. Shout out Susan Slusser. Um, Susan Slusser, the god. The goat. She uh, she quoted this anonymous major league exec who said very plainly, it's the kneeling thing that might keep him from getting another job, not the arrest. Owners aren't going to want to deal with that whole anthem issue. And... You know, respect to this executive for just, like, saying it, man. Yeah. We should add that the arrest that he's referring to is something we also covered on Tipping Pitches as a a further development in this story, I guess. He was arrested uh, at the end of last season uh, after the A's had been eliminated for on a domestic violence charge. And uh, he later took a plea deal. I think you were saying it was mentioned in that piece. Yeah. and that was kind of how that situation played out. So, you know, we should say that he also checked some of those other quote unquote off the field issue boxes, right? But that this executive was specifying he doesn't feel that it's the arrest, the domestic violence arrest, which teams have shown time and time again that domestic violence arrests aren't the reason not to sign a player. Um, yeah. <laughs> like you were saying, it's, it's like, and like we're about to talk about in a few minutes. Uh, teams have no issue going after players who have these sort of off-the-field issues, right? Like, he pulled a gun on a delivery person, and 
uh, you know, was arrested for it and everything. And then, but he remained employed by the A's after that. Like he was a part of their system throughout 2018 in the minors for most of the time. And then they, uh, they let him go and he's not a great baseball player, but there are also not very many good catchers, right? Like, 80% 80% of the league wants JT Real Muto and is willing to give up the farm for him, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's room for a baseball player, for a major league catcher who is like slightly below average. Like that's what the average major league catcher is these days anyway. Um, I guess there was another person in this article who says this is not a Colin Kaepernick situation. This is if Kaepernick knelt for the anthem and also had been arrested for a gun crime. But it's like, no, that's first of all, Maxwell didn't kneel throughout the entire 2018 season anyway. So one would think that maybe teams are like willing to let it slide. Um, but it's also not the arrest, like we were just saying. So there's a there's a weird confluence of things going on here that I think just kind of proves how, you know, I guess regressive the sport is. Like we talk about regularly, and especially in such a predominantly white sport, this feels not run-of-the-mill, but I I kind of expect this sort of thing, you know? This is what we talked about, like you were saying, uh, when this issue first came up. Like, there was so much risk in him doing this, and now here we are without a team. It's hard to tell what the rest of the league feels just from Susan Slusser quoting one executive. Like, you know, how how does that executive know why other teams aren't signing him? It's not like MLB teams are just sharing the reasons that they do or don't sign free agents like this is their competitive advantage you know what i mean so i would be willing to guess that some teams and some owners are uninterested in him because of the anthem thing and some front offices are uninterested in him because of the domestic violence thing and most are uninterested in him because of both some kind of combination of both but when you take it and you try to put it on the terms of what the rest of the league has set as a precedent And I'll just use the New York Mets as an example because they're my favorite team and we're about to talk about them and and Jerry's Familia. They signed Jose Reyes after he was suspended for 40 games for domestic violence while he was with the Rockies. And they brought him back because he was this beloved player. They essentially tried to gaslight the greater fandom into not remembering that he has this charge. And every time they were asked about it, they said they don't want to talk about it anymore and that they've talked about it in the past. But They never really addressed the issue to begin with. And so if we're playing on those terms as a league, then we're to expect that domestic violence is not something that is going to prevent a player from being signed because those are the terms that every other team has set forth. You know, the Astros did it when they traded for Roberto Osuna this past year. I mean, I don't need to give more and more examples. There's those examples with probably every single team in the league. And so I, as a fan, am supposed to believe that that's not prohibitive from you being signed. That in the team's view, guys can be rehabilitated and they can deal with their off-the-field issues and it, it shouldn't inform how they are treated as baseball players, right? That's on one hand. Well, on the other hand, now Maxwell's not getting a contract. And as you said, the catcher position in baseball is really short right now. And there are much worse catchers who keep getting jobs. And so I have no other choice other than to deduce that this anthem thing is playing a large part in the fact that he is not getting a job. And so 
it's just it's discouraging to see like what things matter to teams i guess <laughs> um and how the one person who chose to carry out this protest in baseball is now being retroactively punished for it like you said he didn't even he didn't even do this in 2018 and it didn't even become a quote unquote issue for the league the way that it did for the NFL so essentially all of this is proactively punishing the idea that there might be protest in the future to make an example out of Bruce Maxwell and then now he's not going to get a contract that's going beyond even like infringing on first amendment rights that's like infringing on the idea that you might have first amendment rights down the road if you're a major league baseball player and yeah. like that's what's a real tough look if this ends up being the case if there ends up being more and more whispers and rumors that this is the reason that he hasn't gotten a contract yet because it's literally impossible for mlb teams to make the argument that the domestic violence is the main reason that he didn't get a contract because guys who have done much worse stuff have gotten contracts and granted Araldis Chapman and Jerry's Familia are better players than Bruce Maxwell, but they're not such better players that they should get these lucrative deals and he should not be on a roster. Yeah. I think like you were saying, the they executives probably would like to make an example out of him. And it's especially discouraging when you have other players like Trevor Bauer who are very happily Trump supporters or players like Josh Hader who happily will tweet things about how, about white supremacy, LOL, you know, uh, and showing like kind of the, the certain types of things that you are allowed to speak out on. I mean, not that this differs from any other conversation we've like ever had on this podcast, but it's just all the more illuminating. And I think it's easier in this case for executives to kind of write this off and just be like, well, Maxwell also isn't good. Like he hit 220 at AAA this past year. He's not a very good baseball player, but that's what the entire minor leagues are made up of, right? Is like baseball players who aren't super good are just kind of sort of hanging in there. And the idea that like the the anthem thing was the thing that pushed it over the edge that like meant that he just had too much baggage, um, which is like another quote in there that he had too much baggage. It's like, look around the league, my guy, like half these players have an insane amount of baggage on them, but it's chill because like they can throw a baseball 98 miles an hour. Like that's, that's okay with us. Yeah. Like let's look at Sean Newcomb. Why isn't that a hot button issue that means that he's not on a team anymore? Last week, we talked a lot about tweets, and we talked about how there's something about tweets that makes it like easier for the greater public and for teams to write it off as something that was a mistake made in one moment and is not really who the person is compared to like real-world physical violence. And of course, I'm not here to try to make the argument that someone's tweets when they were 16 are as bad as Bruce Maxwell pulling a gun on someone. Like You can't make that argument in earnest. But you can make the argument that Sean Newcomb, Josh Hader, uh, these other guys who have had tweets pop up from the past, um, Josh Donaldson, who recently just signed with the Braves also, um, you can make the argument that they are still harboring some of these heinous views that haven't been addressed, yet they still continue to get contracts, despite the fact that in his two-year career, Sean Newcomb has a 1-4-2 whip. 
terrible. He has over a four ERA. He has over a four FIP. He's not a very good pitcher. He's league average. So why isn't that an issue that rises above the surface and threatens his next contract? No, this is not a, a perfect example because he his contract was not up in the way that Maxwell's is, right? I guess, or did they just non-tender him? I don't exactly know. I think his minor league contract probably just expired. Yeah, but I think the argument still carries weight because when Sean Newcomb's contract expires, I don't think people are going to think back and be like, remember those tweets? We shouldn't sign this guy. Like, I, I very much doubt that that's an issue that's going to remain at the surface. But like this thing with Maxwell, this Anthem thing, this story still got written, didn't it? Susan Slusser still wrote this article, which means it's still the issue that rises to the surface for him. And you're not reading stories about Donaldson's tweets. You're reading very few stories about Jerry's Familia's domestic violence. Um, and, you know, on Twitter, you're seeing more people talking about how we didn't Mets. You're seeing Mets fans talk about why are we taking him back? He blew so many saves. I guess this is as good a time of any to transition into talking about Familia. When, the, when I saw the Mets resigned him, I basically got the news from like a push notification. But then I was on Twitter and I saw that the Mets had tweeted it out once it became official. And like the masochist that I am, I went into the replies just to try to get some inaccurate but relevant gauge to how Mets fans are responding to this. And it was one of two things. It was either, why did we sign this guy again? He blew so many saves. Don't you remember the 2015 World Series? That was one of the sentiments. And the other sentiment was, well, now that we have Diaz, he doesn't have to be the closer and he could just be the eighth inning guy. That's a pretty great seven, eight, nine, right? And we have Lugo and Gesellman and now the bullpen is bolstered and Brody Van Wagen is finally addressing this concern that we've had for so long. And I'm like, ah, like stick to baseball is really just like, too much for me, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the first thing you think of when Familia signs. Like, I understand thinking about like the World Series, thinking about 2015, like be impossible to be a baseball baseball fan and not think about him as a baseball player. But like, it was just last year that he was suspended for 40 games. Like, that was more recent. Can we talk about that? Why can we still talk about 2015? But we have to somehow, you know, we have to collectively forget what happened in literally this year literally 2018 i just don't i don't understand like where the collective baseball fans mind at is at with that and how that's not something that is disqualifying from wanting to sign this guy back yeah i mean it's certainly telling about where a lot of the interests and priorities of baseball fans lie right like it's illuminating on why not only the fan base, but also the people who are actually in the game skew towards uh, men. I mean, and especially white men. But uh, because of this is the way that fans respond to this sort of thing and the way the teams respond to this sort of thing, right? Is like, well, these are off-field issues and he's going to take care of it. I, I, Addison Russell, um, I saw a tweet the other day about like how he's learning from his mistakes and you know he's like going to therapy um and i it, it's just like you don't like unlearn domestic violence you don't go to a therapist and they say hey domestic violence is bad and you're like oh like there's a there's a certain moral fiber 
in you that has to like compel you to do this sort of thing. And I'm not saying that like humans aren't capable of change or anything like that, but we're so willing to kind of give players the benefit of the doubt and be like, well, it happened once and like he moved on and like he, he served his time and like, it's okay. And like, that's, there's no real restorative justice in that at all. Like Mm -hmm. you just kind of, you gave him a slap on the wrist and he said he learned from his mistakes and then we all moved on. And like you said, you just kind of wipe it from the collective memory, but you can't deal with these systemic issues that way because like this kind of thing keeps happening over and over again. Like if these slaps on the wrist were enough to deter players from doing it, it wouldn't happen anymore. But like, I don't know. You you would want players to learn about this sort of thing before it actually happens, right? Yeah. Like it shouldn't be the kind of thing where there has to be a transgression on their part and then they go to therapy and they say, you know, I'm I'm reflecting on my actions and I'm learning now. Like there needs to be some sort of preemptive action on the part of MLB to actually show that they care about this sort of thing. Otherwise it all just rings hollow. I have two reactions to that. My first reaction and I'm glad you brought the Addison Russell thing up. My first reaction is that we are right on the precipice of every MLB player using therapy as an excuse. Addison Russell got lauded by writers. Like I saw some column written in Yahoo that the Cubs and Addison Russell were now the like banner example of how to handle situations like this in sports. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like Ken, Ken Rosenthal tweeted that too. There is no banner example for how to handle something like this. Like That's not how this works. We're not trying to set an example for how to handle it after it happens. We're trying to set an example for how to stop it from happening. Stop praising people for their apologies. Yeah. Praise people for their actions beforehand. We're just about to get to the point where enough people are praising Addison Russell that every time this happens in the future, therapy, counseling trying to become accountable for your actions, all these things that have been used selectively, but in the past are, are now just about to become the default answer. And you're going to see every single PR team for every single Major League Baseball team try to replicate the thing with Addison Russell. And pretty soon it's just going to water all these things down to where they mean nothing. And then my second thought about that, you said something like, we kind of just accept that baseball players make quote unquote, make one mistake and they can change as people or uh, they're trying to become better in the future. And this happened one time and they understand the wrongs of their actions. And I hate to have like the most bleak outlook that you can possibly have on this, but like the reason that baseball fans and front offices and as a collective enough people forgive players that it's still tenable for teams to employ them the reason that that's still the case is because like you said baseball fans skew male and they skew old and guess what a lot of the fans have these things in their past too a lot of the fans see themselves in the players because they've made this one mistake in the past or they've made a slew of mistakes in the past that they wouldn't want to be out in the public and you know their job has a certain level of privacy and put in addison russell's shoes or put in Jairus Familia's shoes. They wouldn't want all the shit that they've done in the past to come out about them. And so there's a certain level of empathy among the fans to the players about their wrongdoings in the past, which is like this super fucked up type of empathy 
but it's still there. And it's the reason that fans collectively forgive players. I think if baseball cultivated a fan base that was more diverse and had a different perspective on a lot of these issues, I think I think it would become less and less tenable every year for teams to still take back domestic abusers and homophobes and people with violent crimes in their past. Like all these things that we talk about all the time where we wish we could see baseball slowly change. Like I think if you cultivated a fan base where they've been on the other end of this rather than they've been the transgressors, uh, I think you'd see it change a lot faster. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's especially disheartening how quickly fans and columnists or whoever carry water for teams and like the league at large in this too, right? And you can even, you can denounce what Russell did, but you can say, hey, Theo Epstein handled this really well. And it's like, Addison Russell's still on the team. So he said a couple extra sorries and they're donating some money to a domestic violence prevention uh, group. Like, that's great. But why does that mean Theo Epstein's a good guy for this, right? Like, there's there's such a want to, like, kind of forgive and forget and move on because these conversations are uncomfortable and we don't want this. And we want to just be able to watch the game. But, like, you're alienating so many people and sullying the entire experience of it solely for the bottom line, right? Like, that's only what you're interested in is the, is the number in the wins column and the number in the losses column. And I don't know, you just start to kind of dirty what what makes baseball fun to watch, right? Is like this kind of, this pure joy and knowing that like, this is like something that's good in the world. And teams are more than willing to be like, no, we're going to insert some some black marks into this situation and you're just going to deal with it because mm-hmm. you don't have a choice. You're going to keep buying tickets to our games because where else are you going to go, right? Like, like they have... They have fans by, I don't know, their necks, right? Like there's, you you really don't, you don't have a choice because all teams are bad. Every entity is bad. The only, the only choice you have is like whether you want to watch sports at all, right? And even then you can't, I mean, now we get into conversations about other forms of entertainment, right? I mean, this is why it pervades throughout society, but there's a chance for baseball to kind of make itself a haven and it eh, eh, doesn't give a shit about that. Nope. Time and time again, it doesn't even bother to try to be the haven. Last point, you mentioned like Theo Epstein gets lauded as the example and for taking all this action and stuff. And that's fine. I will say his response was better than a lot of other people's responses, which is not saying much, but it is saying something. But it's very hard for me not to take every single thing that every single baseball executive does with a grain of salt, because I don't know these people. I don't know their motivations. I don't know if it's just their PR team telling them to do this. It's impossible for me to think that Theo Epstein is doing anything for us and not just doing anything to save face. It's impossible for me to know whether he's doing it out of earnestness or whether he's doing it to save face for the franchise. There's no way to know and there's no level of sincerity that I will actually believe. Because time and time again, teams have talked out of both sides of their mouth on this issue. So how am I supposed to believe any level of sincerity unless it comes preemptively? Like, how am I supposed to believe that you really wanted to make a change on this issue when it comes after the issue arose? There's no way for me to know. Yeah, I'd, I'd, uh, I, don't have, <laughs> I don't have much more to add to that. It'd be nice to see some preemptive steps, but I, I suppose I'm not 
holding my breath. But the the least that you know we can do as fans is actually hold, try and hold people accountable for this sort of thing and talk about it more and like call Ken Rosenthal on his bullshit, right? And like he's got a Twitter account. That's my like specialty. People, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the longest bit that you have is calling Ken Rosenthal on his BS. Um, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're hopping on a plane to Boston. So some of you may still listen to the radio. Um, If you don't, or you don't know what that is, it's basically like this, what we're doing right now, but live and not as good. Um, But but What a flex. What a flex of a way to start a segment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, You can listen to baseball games on the radio. That's fun. Uh, in Boston, you can listen to Red Sox games on WEEI. They're the ones that carry their uh, their broadcasts in the Northeast. And there was an interesting bit of news that came out this past week regarding their broadcast format. Uh, this is from Chad Finn of the Boston Globe, who wrote a piece about some rumors that said they were having a genuine conversation about dropping the concept of a conventional radio baseball broadcast to make the call of the game sound more like a talk show. And then he followed that up with a confirmation that WEEI is going ahead with plans to do a talk show format during their Red Sox broadcasts the coming season. Now, WEEI, which I've said way too many times already, has uh, is pushing back on the report and saying, like, it's not true. And the agency that, like, put something out about this, is just confused about it or whatever. But this seems to be a serious thing that they were considering doing. There were at least conversations about a talk show format broadcast of baseball games. What on earth would that look like, Bobby? What what should we expect to hear when we tune in to hear Red Sox games next season? That's a really good question. I kind of wish that you had introduced this segment to me live because my immediate <laughs> my immediate reaction before we started recording, I'm going to take the people behind the curtain a little bit, is before we started recording, I was very tired and I hadn't finished drinking my coffee yet. And you said talk show. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting strategy. So are they going to get like three guests and interview them for three innings? And then are they going to have a musical performance during the seventh <laughs> inning stretch? And I was thinking like late night TV talk show. thought that like Jimmy Kimmel was going to call Red Sox games from now on. Yeah. Forget looking for an Oscars host. We're looking for a Red Sox game host. <laughs> um, yeah. And I was like a little bit confused at that concept because I don't, I don't really know how that would work, but I didn't really, I don't truly like hate the idea of, making the broadcast a little bit more casual and conversational. Cause like I imagine they're probably at a pretty desperate point in radio broadcasting. Like if you're not, if you're not watching the game on TV and you're not at the game and you're not following the game on your phone, are you really listening to the radio broadcast? Like, I guess, I guess this is for people who are driving and that's it. And I have been a longtime advocate of the second screen experience for baseball. I think that's that's why baseball 
has the potential to remain very popular because it's a very good second screen or second experience sport. Like you can go with your friends and you can have conversations with them because it's slow paced. And a lot of the things that people think are killing baseball, I actually think are the reason that young people like us are going to continue to enjoy baseball. But like if you're from a radio station perspective, I imagine it's probably pretty hard right now. So I support the idea of trying new things. Honestly, I think this would do better for their TV broadcast format. Yeah. Because like if you're doing a talk show, chances are you're not really informing the person what's happening on the field as much as you used to be doing. And like with radio, that's kind of the whole game, man. It's utilitarian as a broadcast. Like You have to tell the people what's happening because they can't see. Like if you're listening to a radio broadcast and they're not telling you the count and the outs and the score, then why are you even listening to the radio broadcast? You might as well just be listening to tipping pitches. Yeah. But if you're watching a talk show or if you're watching the broadcast and you are hearing a talk show as a supplemental thing that is both entertaining you, making you laugh, also giving you supplemental facts and an experience to the game that you're watching with your own eyes, then at that point we have something. We have some magic going on there if they do it right. But I just don't think for a radio station, this is necessarily the move. Like, I'm never like watching a Mets game and I'm like, hmm, I wish I was listening to Mike Francesa answer calls from Johnny from Staten Island right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm mostly just like, I love Gary, Keith, and Ron. These guys are great. Or I love when Gary, Keith, and Ron are interviewing David Wright. This is a great supplemental experience. They're not really talking about the game necessarily. They're talking about baseball as a game. And so, I don't know. I don't hate the idea. I like the idea. I support innovation. I just don't think this is the right medium for it. Yeah. I mean, and I I think you're right. I think radio probably does need to play around with the format a little bit just to try and engage different audiences. I mean, it's harder because of like fewer people driving and more people commuting, whether it's on the subway or something like that. And they're already, you know, I got news for you. Fewer people are not driving. They need to just broadcast the Red Sox games to California exclusively. Yeah, Yeah, they really should. Or just pipe it into the subway systems, you know, just blare Red Sox (laughs) games over the subways. That's the T to you, Alex. The T the the T in Boston. It's not the subway. This isn't New York. (laughs) Not everything has to revolve around New York, buddy. Yeah. But I do, I do like, I like the idea of changing something up. I just think like talk show format really puts me off because sports talk radio is by and large terrible. (laughs) It's the worst place on earth. (laughs) Like what I think of with that is like one guy who the show revolves around and it's kind of mostly about him and he's usually just kind of yelling at everyone else what his opinions are about it. He's, he's yelling about at the cloud. something. Yeah, yeah, he's yelling at the cloud. And if you're a listener, you either agree with him or you're being forced to agree with him because there's no room for argument on this sort of thing, right? Like, I don't want, I don't want uh, it to be like, and, you know, here we are, top of the third, uh, Mookie Betts stepping to the plate and we uh and here we have Johnny from Cambridge. Johnny, uh what do you think about uh about that decision to pull Joe Kelly after an inning? I don't like I don't give a shit about that. I don't care what the listener thinks or I don't care what the caller thinks and I don't really care what 
the the host himself thinks either. Now, I'm into analysis and humor. Like like you were saying, like I think that that's the kind of thing that makes Gary, Keith, and Ron so entertaining is they probably blur the lines best, right? They're not talking at you so much as trying to kind of talk with you and pull the listener in. And they're talking with each other, right? They're having like Agreed. real, yes. real organic conversations. And That's the point weaving. I was about to make. They actually yeah, like and, each other. Yeah, they like each other and, and they, they actually weave like stories baseball. in. They yeah, exactly. They have their own personal experiences that they can pull from and actually make it engaging for the viewer. Um, so there's there's definitely room for that in radio, and I'd like to see that some more. Just because you you know you don't have the visual element, so you really kind of need to um, engage the listener in other ways and bring more color to that. So. I what I'm saying is I actually do think that Mike Francesa should call Yankees games from now on. I'm I'm here for you know what? I would listen to one broadcast of that. If you just get him on there for one game, I bet you all of New York would tune in to listen to that. Mike Francesa is undefeated, man. Like that's a very unique example. Here's where I worry about the framing of it as like a sports talk radio thing like you said. Sports talk radio is the opposite of what we need in this situation. The whole like idea of trying to make it a little more conversational and and fun and lighthearted and it needs to be funny is what it needs to be because baseball is a hilarious game as you know as our Twitter account tries to prove and as Cespedes Family Barbecue has made a name off of baseball's funny and baseball's fun and people love it and they like it for its lighthearted aspect but when you say sports talk radio and you say W E E I which is famous for being infamous that makes me feel like it's just going to be more of these regressive things that we're talking about it's just going to be more of the atlanta braves announcers complaining about not being not wearing uniforms before the game it's just going to be more of that it's going to be more of joe buck hating the game it's going to be more of all these different things that we complain about all the time it's just like give a comedian a chance to call a game yeah give a young person a chance to call a game Give a new baseball fan a chance to call a game. Give someone who came to baseball later in life a chance to call a game. And if it's really going to be that format, if it's going to be a talk show format where you don't need to know the formula for WRC plus, or you don't need to know Hank Aaron's slugging percentage in 1981. Like if that's really the case, then we should be able to give new people chances to talk about the game because it's going to be more about their personal experience to the game. And that's, what's going to make it fun. So, you know, put your money where your mouth is. W E I give me something fun. Yeah. Honestly. I mean, we had like the, like ESPN two, you know, did their like stat cast broadcast during one of the wild card games, I think. And what I respect about that is like, at least they're trying something, you know, it was pretty boring. Honestly, it was mostly for, for nerds. Um, and I I don't really want to listen to nine innings of talking about WRC plus or or anything like that. Um, but long division so, for nine yeah, innings. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> finding a way to kind of kind of blend that old and new. Yeah, and sports talk radio is super regressive. It's very like macho, just guy kind of yelling all the time. It's <laughs> it's certainly not what we need. But honestly, maybe it's what Boston sports fans deserve. Maybe. I don't know. Let's try it. You and I could do it. Hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
Higher we up say WEI. we say as we know that we would only last like three innings before we would run out of stuff to talk about. Oh my god! Yeah, there would be so much dead air if we had this show. <laughs> yeah, you mean I can't like stop and go to the bathroom just in the middle of an inning or something like that? I can't just scroll Twitter. My life goal is to just be in the booth and just chime in from time to time with Gary, Keith, and Ron, two of the three, because you can't yeah. have a four-person booth. It's tough. Yeah, they should uh, they should open up the phone lines, man. Take some listener calls in the middle of seventh innings of, you know, mid-September Mets games when they're totally out of it. I'm all right with a slow burn. Taking my time at the world turn. I'm gonna do it my way. It'll be all right if we burn it down. Okay. Uh, thank you for listening to another week of Tipping Pitches. Uh, if you guys have segment ideas for when the New York Mets or the Boston Red Sox come calling and asking me and Alex to host their their new talk show broadcast, please let us know. We're we're gonna need all the help we can get. Alex, do you have anything else to to let the people know about? I did a quick Twitter search real quick to see what's happened in the last week with our son Tim Tebow. Uh, the Tim Tebow Foundation released a video where our boy opens up about his baseball injury. And he said, quote, in every setback, there's a comeback. Our God is a God of comebacks. <laughs> <laughs> there's disappointing things that happen. And of course, that was disappointing for me. But at the same time, comebacks are pretty awesome. And I can't wait for this one. So he's he's ready, man. He's gearing up. And I got to say, comebacks are pretty awesome i guess i i certainly like to see things return that disappeared for a short while that's can be sometimes interesting well in the specific case of tim tebow i would like to see him return what if yeah. he comes back and it's just like one of those like disney channel original movies where like something in his hand surgery went horribly wrong but it turns out it actually went horribly right and he his hand was replaced with the hand of god or the hand of Babe Ruth or something like that. And all of a sudden he's like a 310 hitter with 40 home run power. Yeah. Uh, That's what I want to see. I'm all here for it. I love how he's not even being sly about drawing the comparisons anymore, about being the son of God. He's like, our God is a God of comebacks. So I'm going to come back. I mean, I mean, you, <laughs> you, the audience make the connection there. All right. Thank you for that fun little tidbit. We don't have Tim Tebow power hour in our agenda anymore, but we're hoping that it comes back strong in 2019. So thanks for that preview. Yeah. <laughs> Um, thank you for listening. We will be back maybe next week, maybe not. Uh, the holidays are coming up. We'll figure it out. But alas, we will be back at some point. Don't fear. This essential content is coming still. And we will be, just like we did last year, we're going to be putting together a Tipping Pitches Year in Review. So if you have favorite segment ideas, please don't let them go unsubmitted. We we have our own uh, ideas about what were our favorite moments of the year, but it's always interesting to see what what resonated with everyone else so hit us with those tipping underscore pitches on twitter tipping pitches pod at gmail.com um any other any other notes that you need to head alex any other housekeeping not really um i want to wish everyone a happy holidays merry christmas 
Happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, happy Boxing Day for all our UK listeners. Hell yeah, um, Boxing Day. All, all I want for these holidays is for Bryce Harper to sign with the White Sox. That's my only wish. Interesting desire. Interesting desire. But that's fine. Get him out of the, the NL. Um, yeah. All right, we're out of time. Thank you for listening. <laughs> uh, we will be back when we're back. Yeah, thanks so. I'm into analysis and humor. You might as well just be listening to tipping pitches. Oh my god, yeah. They actually like each other. Yeah, they like each other and, and they, they actually leave like stories baseball. in. They yeah, exactly. At least they're trying something, you know? It was pretty boring, honestly. It was mostly for for nerds. 